Today I'll continue discussing why it is that people subscribe to religious relativism, as well as begin my critique of the view. I'm Jason Dooley, and you're listening to the Thinking to Believe podcast. Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast for part two of the subseries on religious relativism. Last week, I introduced the topic. We discussed the different forms of religious relativism so that there are those who say, well, all religions are basically the same. So which one you follow is up to you. Others would say that, well, all religions are actually false because there is no spiritual realm. So in a sense, they're all equally true, at least for you. It might be true for you. Another one's true for somebody else. So it's all relativized. And the third form is the idea that we can't know religious truth, so you just choose the religion that works for you or the one that you prefer. Then we discuss the impacts of religious relativism. How does it impact the conversation about religion? We said first it demotes all uh, religious claims from truth claims to mere preference claims. It means that religion can only be affirmed by faith, not by reason. That feeling and experience and sincerity, that matters more than the content of your beliefs. And finally, that exclusivists, those who believe that only one religion is true, they're deemed to be narrow-minded and intolerant. And then we started the discussion about what drives religious pluralism. Why do people subscribe to this point of view? Why do they think that this is an accurate portrayal of the way that religion works. And we said there's three things that drive religious pluralism. One are epistemological concerns. Number two is pragmatic concerns. And then number three would be inclusivism. So we were only able to discuss one of those three, epistemology. We talked about how there's, you know, the observation that there's so many different beliefs out there, and this isn't what you would expect if God exists or if God was knowable, because if God existed and he was knowable and he wanted us to know him, then surely wouldn't all people have similar beliefs about God? And yet they don't. Not only do humans have different beliefs about God, very different beliefs, but those beliefs are also isolated geographically. They sprung up in different areas of the globe, and that's exactly what you would expect if there is no God or if God is unknowable, and religion is just our best attempt to connect with the divine. We talked about the idea that belief is a geographical accident, and you know, if I was born in America, I'm a, I'm a Christian. If I was born in Iran, I'd be a, a Muslim, and so therefore, you really can't believe that your religion is true. It's just a result of a geographical accident, and we showed why that idea it just does not follow. And then finally, we talked about God being ineffable, the idea that God is you know, beyond human categories of thought, and he's just not knowable, and why that notion of God fails. So today, we're going to pick up right there where we left off, uh, having finished the epistemological concerns that drive religious pluralism, and now turning our attention to the pragmatic and inclusivistic concerns. Let's start with pragmatism. According to religious relativists, what matters is whether or not a religion works for you. 
not whether or not it's true, but what it, whether or not it works for you. That's a very key phrase you'll hear uh, coming from religious relativists. But what exactly does it mean for a religion to work for you? Does it mean that it makes you feel good? Does it mean that you like the beliefs? You like the community? Does it mean it makes you a better person, helps you to overcome things? Um, is it that it allows you to get some X that you want in life? What does it mean for it to work for you? It's a very an- ambiguous concept. And many people you know, that I've talked to where you will ask them about religion, you know, either in general about Christianity in particular, and they'll say, well, I tried religion or I tried Christianity and it didn't work for me. And therefore, they think they're justified in rejecting Christianity or rejecting religion because it didn't work for them. But again, what does that mean? So I would suggest when somebody tells you that, you know, the religion doesn't work for them, ask them some questions like, one, well, what religion did you try or religions? Because there's many different religions and most are as different as night and day. So just because you might have tried one or two or three, why would you give up on religion just because those three didn't work when there's all sorts of other ones that you haven't tried yet? Another question I would ask is, how do you think that religion is supposed to work? They have an idea in their mind about what religion should do for them, and they think that it has failed them. It has not lived up to what it's supposed to do. But what is it supposed to do? You know, for some people, they think that the purpose of religion is to get God or the gods to do stuff for them. It's like, well, I prayed that God would get me a new job, and I didn't get the new job. Therefore, Christianity didn't work for me. Well, that presupposes that somehow that's God's job is to find you a job. Maybe that's not what the Christian God is all about. Maybe you have the wrong expectations. Perhaps somebody tried religion, quote unquote, because they wanted help overcoming an addiction or were having relationship issues. Maybe they were in financial need and you know whatever it was and their prayers to get what they want weren't answered and their religious observances didn't get them what they wanted, then they just deemed the whole religious enterprise a pointless exercise. Other people will think of religion in terms of emotional fulfillment, that religion is supposed to give you a a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And maybe they tried a particular religion and found that it really didn't give them meaning and purpose, and therefore it didn't work. They didn't find emotional fulfillment in religion. Or more commonly, um, you know, those who think of religion in terms of emotional fulfillment never even actually try religion because they find meaning and fulfillment in non-religious sources. And so for them, they'll, they'll say, well, I don't really have a need to try religion because I get my meaning and I get purpose from elsewhere. Now, the problem with this sort of thinking is that they are viewing religion merely in practical terms rather than in terms of truth. Now, this is not unexpected because that's the presupposition of religious relativists is that we can't know religious truth. 
So religion is really all about the practical. It's how it makes you feel. It's what it does for you. But this, again, is the wrong way to think about religion. Um, Nobody would say, for example, well, I tried gravity and it didn't work for me. Why? Because belief in gravity is not based on what it can do for you. It's based on whether or not it exists and whether or not it's true. And the same thing with religion. Now, I'm not saying that religion doesn't do anything for people. It does. But that's not the reason why we should follow any religion because of the practical benefits that we might get out of it or emotional fulfillment or financial um, needs being met. The reason we follow any religion, the only reason to follow a religion is because it is true. Christianity in particular is not so much about emotional fulfillment and prayers being answered. It may involve that, but Christianity is about restoring a broken relationship with God and then growing in our knowledge of God throughout this life and then for time everlasting. That's what Christianity is about. So oftentimes people misunderstand what religion actually is and what religions actually teach because they're so blinded by their relativist point of view and their pragmatic approach towards religion. So when we are evangelizing, when we're talking to people, we should be focusing on who God is, what God wants for us. We should be focusing on our sinfulness, the future judgment, all those things, and not really about the practical things about what religion does for you. We often want to approach people and, you know, oh, God can heal your marriage. God can, you know, restore this and God can heal your body. And those are, you know, needs that people have. And I know that people often respond to God because of need. So I'm not saying we can't talk about those things. That is one element of attraction to Christianity. But ultimately, if if our approach to getting people to come to Christ is just that he's your sugar daddy in the sky who gives you these various things, makes you feel good, you know, heals your body. Well, when those needs are met, then Jesus is no longer needed. If you understand Christianity, Christianity is not about getting your felt needs met. It's not about having your problems fixed in this life. Jesus may do those things for us in the course of our relationship with him or to draw us into relationship with him. But ultimately, Christianity is about having a relationship with God and having our sin problem restored. So Christianity is a matter of truth. It's not necessarily a matter of experience and emotional fulfillment, although it does involve those as well. So I think Christianity will work for people when they understand properly what Christianity is all about and what the purpose of Christianity is all about. The final reason that I would offer as to why people are persuaded of religious relativism is their desire to be inclusivistic. Religious relativism or pluralism is motivated by a desire to include people rather than exclude people. We don't want to say that somebody's sincerely held religious beliefs are mistaken. Especially in the West, in America right now, 
One of the worst things you can do is tell somebody else that they're wrong, to hurt their feelings, to offend them in some kind of a way. And when you tell somebody that their sincerely held beliefs about something are wrong, well, then that's just you being mean-spirited. So we don't want to exclude. We don't want to say people are wrong. We want to be inclusive. And after all, you know, in the relativist view, we're not in a place to know that somebody else is mistaken. So how can you say somebody's mistaken if you can't know that they are? Relativists often would find the idea of inclusivism to be, or not inclusivism, but uh, exclusivism to be uh, repugnant. To say that only my religion is true. Only those who follow my religion will be saved. There's only one way to God, and that's via my religious point of view. They find that to be arrogant. They find that to be unloving, and therefore that is to be avoided at all costs. And yet I find it interesting that, you know, despite the desire not to offend people, the religious relativists are actually offending a whole lot of religious people because people who take their religion seriously and look at what their religion teaches about what is true in the spiritual realm will know that religions usually teach that their way is the only way. Virtually all religions are exclusivistic. So if I talk to a Muslim and the Muslim tells me that I'm wrong and he's right, I expect that. And he would expect for me to tell him that my view is right and his view is wrong. We're not offended by that. That's the nature of our religious beliefs. It's usually those who do not have a religious belief. The religious relativists who are offended when somebody says that their religion is true. It was Michael Gerson. He wrote it this way. He said, it is not a scandal to believers that others hold differing beliefs. It is only a scandal to those offended by all belief. Though I am not a Buddhist or a Muslim, I am not dissed when a Muslim or a Buddhist advocates his views in public. So there you have it. Those are the three reasons as to why people are attracted to and persuaded by religious relativism. They see that there are epistemological problems with knowing God and there's differences of beliefs. They have very pragmatic uh, concerns and an approach to religion, and there is that desire to be inclusivistic. So we've talked about the different forms of religious relativism. We've talked about uh, the implications of this view on the discussion of religion, and we have now concluded our discussion as to what motivates people to adopt this perspective. So now let's go into the heart of this subseries, and that is analyzing this perspective. Why is it that I think religious relativism is a false view of the way religion works? Why is it false? Now, when I talk about this, I'm, I'm coming not from the perspective of arguing why Christianity is true. I am a Christian, and I do believe that Christianity is true, but I'm not going to attempt to argue for any one particular religion as being true. I am just arguing at this point that not all religions can be true. 
One can be true and the others are false or possibly all are wrong. I mean, that's possible. But religious relativism itself, that view that says all religions are equally true, must be false. And so I'm going to offer you a good number of reasons as to why religious relativism fails as a uh, a meta theory about the nature of religion. And I'm not going to get through all these today, so I'll have to continue some in our next and final episode in the subseries on religious relativism as well as the entire series uh, on relativism. But so let's just dig in and see how far we can get today. All right, the first problem with religious relativism is that it is self-refuting because the religious relativist will claim that no one can know religious truth. When you claim to know a certain truth about religion, they will cry foul. You can't know religious truth. But the claim to know that the truth of religion cannot be known is itself a claim to know something true about religion. (laughs) So this is a self-refuting statement. It fails to satisfy its own demands. If it's not possible to know anything about religion, then you couldn't even know that it's impossible to know any truths about religion. That itself is a claim to know something about the way religions work, a truth about religion. So it's self-refuting. And for that reason alone, we could just stop and say, well, end of story, religious pluralism is falsified as uh, a true view on religion. But we will press on uh, and just beat this horse to absolute death. So second reason why I would say it is wrong, and this is going to be a little more sectarian, but it is contrary to biblical teaching. And for somebody who is convinced that the Bible is true, anything that is going to contradict the Bible would thereby be false. So uh, this is sort of a little you know, inside reasoning here that obviously non-Christians would not accept. But for my Christian listeners who might be attracted to religious uh, pluralism, where they kind of hold the whole, I'm a Christian and Jesus is good for me, but hey, you know, for you, there... You could be a good Hindu, and that's great for you. If that's you, you need to listen to this particular section here. When you look at the nature uh, of Christianity, the claims that the Bible makes about Christianity, it never makes it out to be some subjective, true for me, you know, not true for you sort of thing. Christianity does not claim to be subjectively true, but rather objectively true. There is an objective problem with humankind, namely that we have rebelled against our king. We're all in moral rebellion. And likewise, it is objectively true that God became a man in Jesus so that he could die in our stead. He could pay the penalty for our sins so that our moral rebellion could end, that we could be reconciled to God, that we would go from being enemies to friends with God. All this is uh, objective claims. Now, you could say, if you're not a Christian, well, those are false. It never really happened. But that's not what the Bible claims. It purports to be objectively true. And when you look at 
the objective claims that it makes. And when you look at the uniqueness of the atonement for solving the universal problem of humankind, well, it follows then that there can be no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. He alone solved the sin problem that separates us from the one true God. So the nature of the Christian story is such that you can't say, well, Jesus is my Savior, but not necessarily your Savior. No, Jesus is everyone's Savior, because no one else has paid the penalty for our sins. So let me read for you just a number of passages here that make it clear that the biblical perspective is opposed to religious pluralism. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, Jesus is the only way. You're not going to be saved any other way. Why? Because nobody else has objectively done something that can solve your objective problem. We have a spiritual problem. Only Jesus solved it. So we're not, you know, being pompous and arrogant saying, oh, we have the truth. No, this is more like, you know, there's a disease that's incurable. Everybody has it. Everybody's dying from it. But one person has found the cure. He wouldn't be arrogant to say, hey, if you want to live, come to me because I have the cure. There is salvation in no other. Similarly, in Jesus Christ, he alone has the cure for our sin problem. He alone has the cure for our sin disease. So we have to come to him. We cannot be saved apart from him. Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh, were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now listen to this. Having no hope and without God in the world. So he's being very clear here. Before you became a Christian, you had no hope. No hope in what? No hope in eternal life. No hope for dealing with your sin problem. You were without God in this world. Now, these were pagans. They weren't atheists. They had their own deities. But according to him, they did not have the true God. They may have had some fake deities, may have had some demonic uh, beings that they worshipped, but they were without God. They had no hope. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You can't be brought close to God apart from the blood of Christ. There's only one way to get to God. Um, That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The Bible is clearly exclusivistic. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So from Jesus' perspective, the vast majority of people will not find eternal life. They will go to hell. 
But yet, if you look at the, all the world's religions, if you are a religious pluralist, if, if religious pluralism is true, then all those other people, well, they're, they're finding God. They're just finding him on their own path. They're getting to God in their own way. But that's not what Jesus said. The way to get to God is very, very narrow. There is a one narrow path, not many paths to God, but one narrow path. The other paths are wide, but they don't lead to God. They lead to destruction. There's a lot of other passages I could appeal to as well, but I think those few I just quoted make it very clear that the Bible is exclusivistic, not arrogant in its exclusivism. There's a a reason why it's exclusivistic, and the reason is because Jesus alone has objectively paid for our objective spiritual problem, namely sin. All right, the third reason that religious relativism is false is that religions are very different from one another. Now, this would be a particular critique against the first form of religious pluralism I discussed, which is the idea that all religions are basically the same. I hear this one a lot from people. A lot of people are under the mistaken impression that religions are all basically the same, that they all teach about God and love and morality and, you know, you go to some sort of a heaven. So what they are doing is they are focusing on what they think are the similarities between religions uh, rather than on the differences. But the similarities are really inconsequential to the question. The differences are what matter. Saying they're all basically the same, well, even if they were all basically the same, there are still differences between them. The differences between them would still matter even if they're all basically the same, which they're not, and I'll talk about that in a second. So the similarities are inconsequential to the question. It's like saying, as Greg Kokel likes to say, Uh, saying that aspirin and arsenic are basically the same because both come in tablet form and both are white. Well, those may be some similarities, but who cares about those similarities? It's the differences in the chemical makeup of those two drugs that makes all the difference in the world. It's the differences that are critical. It's the distinctives that set them apart and that are essential for our understanding. So that's what we should be focusing on, not the similarities. But the view that all religions are basically the same is false, patently false. And anybody who's taken a world religions class would know that. Religions are fundamentally different and only superficially similar. They're not fundamentally similar and only superficially different. So it's the exact opposite of what people think. Journalist uh, Steve Turner described the spirit of the age when he sarcastically wrote this. He says, we believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the ones we read were. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. And I love the way he says that because this is the truth. They do all differ in these areas. Some say God is personal. Others say God is uh, uh, impersonal. Some say that the problem with humans is that they have ignorance, that they don't know their true divine self. 
Others will say that the problem with uh, humankind is sin, moral rebellion. Some say that when you die, you are extinguished. You cease to exist. Others believe there's an afterlife. Some religions have an afterlife that is very earthly. Some have an afterlife that is very ethereal. So all the religions have you know, a different perspective, different views on what it is to be saved. And some religions don't even have the concept of salvation. Some religions don't even have a deity. Buddhism is an, uh, a non-theistic religion. Now, there are some s- certain sects of Buddhism where they do believe in some sort of divine uh, entity, but uh, most uh, Buddhists, as I understand it, are non-theists, or some might even be classified as atheists. Not all religions have a concept of salvation. Now, all worldviews you know, have a view of the world and, and where things came from and the problem with humankind, but the answers that they give to those basic worldview questions are very, very different. So it's simply false that all religions are basically the same. All right, a fourth problem with religious pluralism is that not all religions can be true. Now, I do accept the idea that there is some elements of truth found in most, if not all, religions. But it doesn't follow that because there is truth in all religions, that all religions are equally true. Indeed, it can't be the case that all religions are equally true, because religions often contradict one another in their depiction of spiritual reality. So as we were just discussing on the last point, as I said, some say God is personal, others say he's not personal. Some will say you go to heaven when you die, others say you're reincarnated. Some say that Jesus is the Messiah, others say that he is a heretic. You know, God cannot be both personal and impersonal at the same time. You can't be both reincarnated and resurrected after your death. You can be one or the other or neither, but it can't be both. Jesus can't be both the Messiah and not the Messiah. These contradictions demonstrate that religious uh, claims cannot all be true because there are these vital contradictions in vital areas of the different religious worldviews. We must conclude that not all of them can be true. All right, number five, religious relativism makes belief nonsensical. People will talk about, well, I believe in Christianity. I believe in Buddhism. I believe in Hinduism. Whatever their beliefs are, they they believe in this particular religion. But what does it mean to say that you believe something if you don't actually believe it's true? When we say, I believe X, we're saying, I believe that X is true. So if you don't actually believe your religion is true, then what does it mean to say you believe it? I mean, would anybody say, well, I believe I believe in Cinderella. Do you believe Cinderella is, is true, that it's true to history, that it actually happened? No, 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 it's all made up. Well, then what does it mean you believe it? That's make-believe. But when we say that we believe a, a particular religious perspective, we're not saying it's make-believe. We have to be able to claim that we think it's true. But if we think that is true, that what what we believe, well, then all other beliefs that are contrary to our own 
claims that are contrary to the religious claims that we subscribe to, those other beliefs must be false. They can't all be true. So religious relativism would make belief in any religion nonsensical. All right, number, I think this is six now. It is impossible to believe that all religions are true. And this kind of follows from what I was just talking about. You can't affirm all beliefs as equally true. I know in a relativistic sense, well, it's true for you. But for everything that we choose to believe in, we're choosing a whole host of other things that we're not believing in. So if you embrace one belief, then you are rejecting another belief. Now, you may not be actively rejecting it, like you, you're not necessarily going online and saying, I am a Christian, therefore I reject this, I reject that. But the nature of beliefs is such that when you embrace one belief, you have to uh, reject all competing beliefs, beliefs that would contradict the belief that you embrace. So you have to exclude some beliefs. I mean, even the person who says that they believe all religions are true has to reject religious traditions that claim that there can only be one true religion. There's no way you can just affirm all beliefs. That's just not the way it works. In fact, if you were expected to affirm all beliefs as true and valid, it would produce a religious schizophrenia. Because pluralism mandates that a person believe that competing truth claims are all valid and yet worship as though they're not. In theory, you're supposed to affirm the truth of all traditions, but in practice, you act as if you are right. So a Christian is supposed to affirm the relative truthfulness of animism and Islam and Hinduism, but then on Sunday... They go to church and they worship God as the unique uh, divine being. They worship Jesus as divine and they acknowledge the Bible as God's specific revelation to humankind. You can't do those together. You can't worship that way and claim to believe those things while at the same time claiming that all the other religious beliefs are also true. You can't forever entertain such religious schizophrenia. All right, I'll finish out this episode with one final critique, and then we'll save the others for next time. Uh, This seventh problem with religious relativism is that it misunderstands the value of faith. See, religious relativists tend to have this view that faith has intrinsic value, that faith is valuable in and of itself, that just having the faith. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something and you believe it sincerely. It doesn't matter what philosophy or religion you follow. As long as you get God in there somewhere and you're following your religion sincerely, then you're good. You might say it this way. That you believe is more important than what you believe on religious pluralism. Remember, you're choosing a religion according to your personal taste. You're not choosing religions based on what you think is true. So what religion you choose to follow doesn't really matter as long as you've got God in there somewhere and you're being sincere, as long as it works for you. But I find this to be problematic because this is not an accurate 
or a good portrayal of faith. I don't find faith valuable in and of itself. I'm not happy that somebody is a person of faith, quote unquote. I'm more concerned about what they have faith in. Is there faith in reality or is there faith in a fairy tale? Because it doesn't matter whether or not you just believe in something, whether you believe in God. It's not enough to believe in God. God, G-O-D, that's just a sound. There's no content to that. The real question is not, do you believe in God, but who is God? What is this God that you believe in? That's what matters most. I mean, if God is somebody in particular, then there are particular things that are true about him. And there are other things and a whole lot of things that are false about him. So what matters is about who God really is. That's what we should be concerned about. As for faith, faith is not just this blind commitment of our will, you know, in the absence of all reason. Faith is a, a reasoned judgment in reality. Faith itself is not virtuous in and of itself. It derives its value from its content. Faith is virtuous only if the contents of that faith correspond to reality. If they don't correspond to reality, then that faith is not something good. That faith can actually be destructive. Think about it this way. If you want to survive in the physical world, you don't want to die, but you want to survive. You want to thrive even in the physical world. Then you have to determine what is true and what is false, what is good and what is bad about that physical world. And if you fail to distinguish between what is true and false in the physical world, the results can be absolutely disastrous. I mean, if you think that you are a bird who can fly and you go up on the top of a high building and you jump off, well, guess what? That belief is mistaken and you're going to pay a very heavy price for having believed that. Because reality has a way of smacking people upside the head and correcting our false beliefs. So if true beliefs help me to survive in the physical world, why should we think that true beliefs are not necessary for our survival in the spiritual world? If there is a spiritual realm, if it's just as real as the physical realm, then if we want to be able to properly navigate that realm and be successful and find God and to experience everything we're supposed to experience in that realm, then we need to know some truths about that realm. And if we have false beliefs about the spiritual realm, then it could be as destructive to our spiritual life as false knowledge about the physical world can be destructive to our physical life. You may sincerely believe falsehoods about the spiritual reality, but that doesn't make your beliefs true. The sincerity of your beliefs cannot make it true. If you believe that gravity no longer exists and you jump off the top of the building expecting to float, you may have been sincere, but it's not going to change the fact that you're going to die. Sincerity can't make a false belief true. It can't make you know something that is fictional non-fiction. So we, sincerity, yeah, I, I can acknowledge somebody's sincere in their faith, 
But what matters is not their sincerity. What matters is, are their beliefs lined up with reality? Because the only reason we should choose any religion is because it is true to the real world. All right, well, we've covered a lot of ground here today, finishing up our discussion on reasons why people adopt religious relativism, looking at pragmatic concerns, the desire for inclusivism, and looked at seven different reasons why religious relativism cannot be an accurate portrayal of religion. We said it is self-refuting, it is contrary to biblical teaching, uh, that it is not true that religions are all the same, that they are very different, uh, that not all religions can be true, um, that it makes belief nonsensical, uh, it's impossible to believe all religions are true, and that faith itself has no intrinsic value. So tune in next time. I'll continue this discussion, round out this series, giving a few more reasons as to why religious relativism must be false. And then I'll examine the popular metaphors for religious relativism, namely all roads lead to Rome and the parable of the blind men and the elephant. To read my latest thoughts, visit the Thinking to Believe blog at thinkingtobelieve.com. Or if you'd like to comment on today's podcast, you can do so at the Thinking to Believe Facebook page. You can also send me any questions you might have at thinkingtobelieve at gmail.com. Until next time, keep thinking to believe.